Good morning. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on Judges 15? All right, me neither. So uh, never preach one. And we're on 12 anyways, so I don't know why I'm thinking 15. I guess I can ask that question in three weeks. Well, let's open your Bible, if you have one, to Judges chapter 12. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There's a couple provided on the bar, just in the room off to my left here. We're in Judges chapter 12, and this week we're actually only covering 15 verses. So, wow, right? As we've been going through Judges, uh, I've had a blast as I've preached, and I've heard Will and Nathan preach through Judges, uh, trying to make sense of this crazy book called Judges and what is God trying to teach us in it. And I've loved how every week we get the opportunity to see our need for Jesus and how each judge shows and points towards the need for a, a savior, a king. And ultimately, that's fulfilled in in Jesus. But I don't want to get ahead of myself this morning, although I'd love to just go straight to Jesus. Uh, Let me invite you to open to that passage that was just read. Uh, Christian, thank you for reading. Um, This week is the end of Jephthah. As we saw last week, we covered Judges chapter 11, verses 1 through 40. And we were introduced to this character named Judges. He was introduced as a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. And God uses Jephthah, he empowers him to free them from their enemies, the Ammonites. But at the end of Judges chapter 11, Jephthah makes this tragic vow to the Lord in which he ends up sacrificing his own daughter as a burnt offering. And that's kind of where the story ended last week as we looked at Judges 11 verses 1 through 40. Uh, the, the chapter concludes with the daughters of Israel going to lament and this kind of becoming a tradition as as the women and, and daughters of Israel remember Jephthah's daughter who was sacrificed as a burnt offering. And Judges 12 kind of wraps up Jephthah's life with more conflict, with more problems. And this with the men of Ephraim. Now this would be from a different tribe from Jephthah, who was from the, uh, Gilead, which would be from the tribe of uh, Manasseh. Uh, But this isn't the first time that these men of Ephraim have caused problems. If you can remember, about a month ago, we covered Gideon. And after God had brought victory through Gideon to the people, these men of Ephraim have a similar beef with Gideon. They come up to Gideon in in Judges chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And they say, what is this you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. And if you remember, Gideon responds very diplomatically. And he says, what? What have I done in comparison with you, right? How, how can my, uh, the gleaning of grapes of Ephraim is better than the harvest from Abiezer, right? And he kind of smooth talks these men of Ephraim. He's very diplomatic in this crisis and seemingly civil war that could have erupted is ended, but not so much with the story of Jephthah. As we've described throughout the book of Judges, we see that Judges describes a downward spiral of the people of Israel where each story, each judge gets worse and worse. And, and although we're not in Judges 15 today, uh, as we get to later chapters of Judges, it gets worse and worse and darker and darker. And what this story shows us is that this conflict and problem that we've seen before with Ephraim is now worse. And it's not averted. And Jephthah isn't diplomatic, and he isn't patient and smooth-talking with the people to avoid war. He seemingly gets insulted, gets angry, and goes to war. 
So these Ephraimites, they threaten Jephthah and they say, we will burn your house over you with fire. Okay, now with Gideon, they just complained and they accused him fiercely. But with Jephthah now, they're making a threat. They're saying, we're going to burn your house over you with fire. And other translations will say, we're going to burn your house with you in it. Or we're going to burn your house down on you. We're going to burn your house over your head. And this, I think, is a cruel sense of irony for the men of Ephraim because, in a sense, Jephthah has already destroyed his own house with fire because he burned his own daughter. He destroyed his household by sacrificing his only daughter. He had already offered his daughter as a burnt offering. Therefore, in a sense, his house has already been burned down. I mean, this is a cruel insult, it seems. And Jephthah responds to the people. He has a rebuttal in verse 2. He says, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from, them hand, from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and I crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up against me to fight this day? Excuse me. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Now, we're not told whether or not this claim from Jephthah is true. He's claiming he went to the Ephraimites and said, hey, I called you guys, but you didn't answer. The text doesn't say one way or the other. I mean, he could have been fabricating this. He could not have been. But the point is, I think, that he doesn't wait like he did before with the Ammonites. There's not this, like, dialogue of back and forth. There's not a patience and a, a seemingly wanting to avert a war like he did with the king of the Ammonites. He takes this into his own hands. There's no... There's no record or response here, recording of the Lord being with him or empowering him or guiding him. He seemingly justifies himself, takes this threat personally, and treats the people of Israel worse than his enemies. He has less patience with them. He doesn't wait for a response. He gathers all of his men and he goes and fights against Ephraim and they strike Ephraim and they defeat them. They win victory over them. It says in, in, in Judges 12, verse 4, they struck the men of Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the way of thinking about that is you, you are renegades, you are fugitives, you're, you're nothing more than fugitives. So here you have Jephthah, this illegitimate son of a prostitute, being insulted that their tribe is illegitimate. It's not really from the, one of the people of Israel, you're just living in the midst of these territories. You don't really have a place here. Seemingly, Jephthah can't tolerate this. He takes it so personally, he gets angry. He, the legitimacy of Gilead cannot be questioned. For them to say that you're not really a, a legitimate member, you're just a fugitive, to say you don't have a place in the family, you're not really valuable, you don't, you don't belong here. And they pay the cost. They're slaughtered. It says 42,000 of them died. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the people of Ephraim and essentially designed or created a way to discover who is really an Ephraimite because they had a problem pronouncing this word. They would ask, if anyone tried to escape the men of Gilead after they surrounded them and oppressed them, these men of Ephraim who tried to escape, they asked them the question, are you an Ephraimite? Are you an Ephraimite? He said, no. And they would ask, hey, pronounce this word for us. And we don't really know what the word means. This word, uh, sheboleth. Uh, there's some speculation the meaning is uncertain. It could mean a current of water, a flowing stream, an ear of wheat or grain, or a bunch of twigs. So that's what I found in my studies. They're not really 
correlation between those two words, or all those phrases, so we don't really know what it means. The point being that someone from Ephraim would have a hard time pronouncing this word. They couldn't say it. It's similar to how if you ever have been down south or experienced different uh, cultures where they have different ways of pronouncing things. Uh, my, my wife, we, we moved down to Louisiana and did some student ministry there, and my wife worked at a bank, and, and she had at first, a real hard time understanding some of these uh, southwestern Louisianians. So when they would say, do you have a, a pen? She didn't know if it was a pen or a, or a pen. Or if you say, it's in the whale. They didn't know if you're saying, are you saying whale? Or are you saying well? You know, just those kind of differences. And I don't know if they would have a hard time pronouncing. I mean, certain, certainly some of the people... They thought we talked really funny and too proper, and they had a hard time pronouncing words, I think, the correct way, but <laughs> the point being, we can understand kind of what these men of Ephraim were getting at with the men of Gilead. They couldn't pronounce this word, and it says they seized, if this person couldn't pronounce the word right, and they revealed themselves an Ephraimite, they seized him and slaughtered him. And at that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. And then we'd have one final verse about Jephthah. He judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city of Gilead. Now, notice a couple of things that are missing from the usual refrain of these major judges. Judges like we've seen before in Gideon or Ehud. There's not a long period in which Jephthah judges. It's only six years. Right? And there's no mention of the land having rest. That was a usual refrain of the judges who would, the land would be described as having rest. We see this with uh, judges such as Gideon and Deborah and Barak and Ehud. The land is described as having rest for 40 years with Gideon, for 40 years with Deborah and Barak, and for 80 years under Ehud. But there's no mention of rest with Jephthah. It's also a shorter period, like we mentioned before, of only six years. So I think in all of this with Jephthah, we see that through Jephthah's pagan practice of sacrificing his own daughter, through the civil war with the people of Israel, as the people of Gilead slaughter their own people of Israel, the, the men of Ephraim, we see the moral fabric, the increased wickedness, the downward spile throughout the book of Judges. And now we come to verses 8 through 15, which describe the last minor judges. These judges that we've seen before, like Shamgar, or uh, Jair and Tola. There's three of them. And after these final judges, we come to a total of 11 judges, and we have one more to go with Samson, which we'll cover next week. But the final three judges are a guy named Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. And upon first glance, as you read through this or you glance at it, there's, there's not a lot there, right? But when you look a little bit about the historical context, when you look briefly at that, you see this is another example of the narrator describing how the story gets worse and worse. In verse 8 through 10, we're told about this guy named Ibzan of Bethlehem who judged Israel, and he has 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gives his daughters in marriage outside of his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in for his sons outside of the clan. And he judges Israel seven years. Now, I think the mention of 30 is interesting in regards to the last judge that we saw before Jephthah was described as having 30 sons. It's similar to the judge Jair, who was also a Gileadite like Jephthah. And the fact to me that Jephthah is sandwiched in between 
one judge who has a lot of kids and another judge who has a lot of kids might be the way of the narrator highlighting the foolishness and the tragedy of Jephthah sacrificing his only child. This also shows to have 60 children would require many wives, which was, would have been required a harem or a, a place to house all these wives to have this many kids. I mean, I can't even... Two is a lot. You know, I can't even imagine... <laughs> I mean, two kids. I, I don't have two wives, right? <laughs> but having all of these children would have been a, a common practice for the kings of the ancient Near East that lived in this area. And it was a common practice to try to uh, kind of diversify your assets, if you will, by sending your daughters away and bringing daughters in of outside tribes. It was a way of kind of establishing a power base, establishing control and, and wealth, which it's not what the rulers or the judges of Israel were supposed to do. In the middle of these two, uh, Ibzan and Abdon, we had this guy named Elon. There's not much that's told about him. I, I did think it was interesting that the 10th judge judges for 10 years, but that's about the only thing that I wanted to highlight there. We can jump right along to Abdon. The son of Hillel, the Pirathonite who judged Israel, he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Now again, this was another practice of the kings. They would ride on donkeys. It was a steed of, of monarchy. And to have all of these kids and many grandkids, again, is highlighting the fact Jephthah had no kids. Well, he had one kid. He sacrificed him. And in turn, he had no grandkids. And this might have been a way of this, this judge, Abdon, trying to establish his own dynasty, his own kingdom, his own rule. But we see it, it doesn't last because soon, sooner or later they die and the people do us wrong again. And then we have the need for Samson. But all three of these judges are not recorded like the previous judges beforehand of saving Israel. Again, you see a difference there. In the minor judges, similar to Jephthah, who was a major judge. And unlike the minor judges before them, Tola and Jair, they only judge Israel seven years, ten years, and eight years. Whereas Tola and Jair are recorded as judging Israel 23 years and 22 years. So in Judges 15, you have the second to last major judge in Jephthah, and you have the final minor judges. And the major judge is not described as being rest to the land. He's not described as having a long rule. And the minor judges aren't recorded as saving Israel. And that's the conclusion of Judges 12. Even in my notes, I have Judges 15 written all throughout this. I'm not sure what was I was, I was thinking. Yeah, I don't know if I want to... Anyways... I don't know what's so special about Judges 15, but after looking through Judges 12, end of Jephthah, all three minor judges, we want to think about what can we learn from this story? What can we learn from this chapter? What is God trying to teach us? And as you know, every week we've been answering three, three questions of every story, every chapter. What does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with people? How does this story connect with the Bible's larger story or meta narrative? And what exhortation or... Admonition does this story offer to us, right? And hopefully, you guys have used these practices in other Bible readings, and I find that they've been really helpful for us as we studied through Judges, trying to, trying to stay kind of somewhat coherent through week to week and just seeing what is God having us in this story. And as we think about Judges 12 and answering that first question, what does the story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? The questions can be seemingly difficult to answer in a, in a chapter where God isn't really that active, 
He's not mentioned as empowering judges. He's not mentioned as raising up these other judges. He's seemingly not there. What do we do with that? God does not bless, guide, or empower Jephthah in his conflict with the men of Ephraim. Jephthah does not go to God for counsel or wisdom in dealing with Ephraim. He's seemingly less patient and less diplomatic with his own people than with his enemies. There's no mention of God in verses 8 through 15. God does not raise up these judges. God does not save Israel through these judges. And this seems to be the point. Apart from God's power and grace and active involvement, humanity will slaughter each other. They will seek to establish their own rule, power, and kingdom. And left to themselves, they will not seek God. Apart from God's grace, humanity will seek to take matters into their own hands, whether we see this in the tragic violence that Jephthah had in killing his fellow Israelites in the Civil War, or whether we see this in the desire and ambition to establish control, power, or dynasty of Abdon or Ibzan. In the end, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon all die. There's no rest. There's no salvation. There's no restoration of what has gone wrong. And apart from God's intervention in humanity, humanity will come and go. There will be cycles of humanity, of wickedness and lawlessness, and only things getting worse. I believe this story proclaims the desperate need that humanity has for God. A way that we can think about this truth, about how a lack of something reveals a desperate need for something, is thinking about what has been called the father absence crisis in America. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 24 million children in America, that's at least one out of every three, are growing up in homes without their biological dad. This leads to a lot of struggle, problems, and saddening statistics. I'll read a couple for you now. The studies, research statistics show that kids who grew up without fathers are four times more likely to live in poverty, are more likely to spend time in prison, are more likely to drop out of school almost twice as much, Children growing up with a father are more than twice as likely to commit suicide. Boys are much more likely to act out. Girls are twice as likely to suffer from obesity and four times more likely to get pregnant as a teenager. Kids that grow up in a home without a father are more likely to suffer abuse and abuse drugs and alcohol. And that's just skimming the surface of these statistics. And I'm sure those of you who are teachers or work with kids in this room have seen the negative effects of this. And... Of course, in all these studies and statistics, I in no mean intend to diminish or devalue those who have been raised by single mothers or those who are single mothers. When I look at this church, many of you have been raised without a dad or have kids who have been abandoned by their father. But certainly these statistics show us that it's a hurdle, it's a struggle. That it's admirable and, and takes valor to raise kids without a dad. There's obstacles to overcome. And I'll be quick to admit this, as just this last weekend, I watched my girls for one full day, a night, and a half a day. And every time I do that, I just have a ton of respect for single parents. And that just happens to me a couple times. The reality of our situation in America is what led former President Barack Obama to say, we need fathers to realize that responsibility does not end at conception. Too many fathers are MIA. Too many fathers are AWOL, missing from too many lives and too many homes. They have abandoned their responsibility, acting like boys instead of men, and the foundations of our families are weaker because of it. All that to say, through the lack of absence of fathers, we see it creates problems. And through the lack of God in this story in Judges 12, we see it creates problems. 
course, any illustration about the reality of God uh, falls apart and breaks down at some point. But throughout the book of Judges, and I'm, I'm certainly not saying that God abandons his people, throughout the book of Judges, we see again and again, it's the people who have abandoned God. It's not that God leaves his people, but the people leave God, they forsake him, they live and operate apart from his revealed will and word as revealed in the Bible. The psalmist says, no one seeks God. The Bible says that there is no one who is righteous. The prophet Isaiah says, all have turned astray. Apart from God's grace and God's mercy, humanity is on a path destined for misery and death and heartache and separation from God, beginning in this life and continuing on for eternity. The point being in this illustration about fatherlessness is that if we can see the saddening statistics, the problems that it creates in our society, if one half of the parent, the creator of this child, is absent, certainly we can think of, we can see the negative effects of abandoning the whole being, the whole creator who created all life, who designed all things, who without him nothing would exist, nothing would be sustained, nothing would have life. Certainly we can see that correlation, that abandoning God leads to devastating effects in this life and forever. Living apart from God's will has eternal consequences. And the seeming absent, active presence of God in this story reveals humanity's desperate need for God, not because God has left humanity, but because they have left him. Judges 12 shows us the need for a savior who will save humanity from themselves who will establish an eternal rule, who will bring peace and patience and kindness and goodness and security and a forever family, a forever kingdom. The story shows that the need for God's people to save them and unify them, as we've seen in Jephthah in the Civil War, and to establish them forever, an eternal kingdom. And this is how we're going to seek to answer that second question in our notes. How does this story connect to the Bible's larger story? Now, in the immediate context of Judges, we can see that Judges, the book of Judges, is showing us the need for a savior, the need for a king, a a good king, that the Israelites need who will bring peace and unity and bring the people back to God, a king that would eventually come with a man named David, as the book uh, soon after Judges records, and Samuel. But the scene need in the story for a king, a savior, a judge to bring unity ultimately comes into fruition in a king named Jesus. Each week, we've seen how each story in Judges point to Jesus. Jesus is the Savior we need. Jesus is the King we need. And this week, what's highlighted is the need for a King who will bring unity and eternal establishment. The beginning of the biblical story in Genesis begins uh, where God creates humanity in good. Creation is designed for human flourishing. God creates humanity, male and female, in his image. In the image of God, he creates them. And God creates marriage where humanity and community are to be built. Where uh, in marriage, the man and woman are described as becoming one flesh and they are commanded to be fruitful and multiply. These first humans of humanity in this marriage were to be unified like God is unified. Two distinct persons, equal but one. In reflection to like God who is three persons in one who exist eternally and three divine persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The first human beings were created to uh, image this God in love, in knowledge of one another, in intimacy, in unity. But everything changes when sin enters into the world. 
As recorded in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve doubt God's goodness. They prefer other created things against God's word, and they sin. They are deceived by a serpent to believe that, that God isn't for them or good, and they eat of the one tree from the fruit that God has commanded them not to. And in this moment, everything changes. Relationship with God and humanity change. Relationship with humanity, one another, change. Relationship with the creation is shattered. Adam and Eve blame shift and, and blame one another instead of standing together. They're divided. They experience fear and shame. And the rest of the story from Genesis 3 unfolds. Adam and Eve's own kids suffer jealousy and anger and rage, and Cain kills his own brother, Abel. Own family members are killing one another. And all throughout the Bible, you see that it doesn't matter if they're related by blood, that all humanity has fallen and are prone to jealousy and anger and strife and murder and division. And Judges 12 is just another example in that story. All humanity is in need of restoration and reconciliation. All humanity is in need of a new family of order and peace and kindness and goodness and forgiveness and love. All humanity is in need of a good father and a loving parent in God. And after Judges, we, there's a period of scripture that's called the Prophets who promise and prophesy that there would one day be a, a king, a messiah, an anointed one. He would be called the prince of peace. He would come to establish an everlasting kingdom. Of his government, of his rule, there would be no end. One day that this king would come to Israel to establish this forever family, this forever kingdom. And when you flip to the, your Bibles to the part of the scriptures that are called the Gospels, and you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see a man named Jesus stepping onto the scene and saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one that the prophets pointed towards. I have come to establish a new kingdom and a new family. He tells the disciples, don't call anyone rabbi or teacher. You have one teacher. You're all brothers. Don't call anyone father. You have one father. This is what he teaches. Before his death, Jesus prays for his disciples and for the unity that he was about to establish in his death. And in the great, uh, what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, he says this, I ask not only for these, but those who will believe in me through their words, speaking of his disciples. This is what he prays. I pray that they would be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, and that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus taught about unity, he prayed for unity, and he established it by dying on the cross. He offers the way for reconciliation and unity. And now through faith, anyone... There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All through faith can be one in Christ. Amen. One of my favorite passages of scripture, the apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ Jesus as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Judges 12 shows us the need for Jesus who will bring this unity. Jesus who will save us from this schism and separation we have from God and bring reconciliation to God and man and reconciliation between one another. And I believe Judges 12 also has a clear exhortation or a clear encouragement, a clear command for us this morning. And as we seek to answer that third question, what admonition or exhortation does this story offer? I think it's very clear. Pursue unity. Pursue unity. Build up the family of God. Seek to maintain the unity of the spirit that Jesus came to establish. In the story, we see that Jephthah is much harsher, much more impatient. He's seemingly more insulted by his own people than against his enemies. Jephthah doesn't wait for a response from the Ephraimites like he did with the king of the Ammonites. 42,000 of the Ephraimites die. Although peaceful and diplomatic with the king of the Ammonites, Jephthah treats God's people worse than the enemies of God's people. And I would submit to you that today we are not much better. We may not kill 42,000 of our fellow people, but we do cut one another down with our words, with our thoughts, and with our actions. One pastor said it like this, If we spent as much time pursuing unity and overlooking insults within our churches as we do seeking to remain on good terms with the world, our our communities and churches would be far less divided and far more loving. The story asks us to think about, are we quick to be critical and criticize? Are we quick to take insults quickly and snap? My brothers and sisters, we we must not be deceived by thinking that our problems of the church, the greatest problems of the church are out there. That somehow this pagan evil world that's around us, there's anything that judges showed us that showed us that the problems are within. The problem is in our hearts. The problem is in our churches. God is one. Jesus prayed for unity. Jesus prayed that his people would be one as he and his father are one. When we think about what, what is a church that is divided or a community that is divided or a people that are not unified reflect? When God's people are divided, when there is gossip, when there is slander, when there is envy, when there is jealousy, when there is resentment, when there is a lack of forgiveness or warmth or love or acceptance, they actually reflect more of the demonic than the godly. A church that is divided is a church lacking the power of the gospel reflecting more of the image of Satan and damaging the name of the Christ to a watching world. Do we have that kind of resolve, our our priority in valuing unity? Is unity something that you regularly pray for for your church? Do you regularly pray for and seek to encourage and build up one another? Certainly it's nice to receive encouraging texts, but do we sit around and just wait for those to happen and complain that no one's pursuing us and reaching out to us? 
are we seeking to be intentional and show love to those who are around us? Where does unity rank on your list of priorities? How much of a priority is it for you to build up the church, to show tangible acts of love and forgiveness to God's people? Before you think and speak, do you think to yourself, will this build up or tear down someone? What if we actually viewed all those terms that we read in the New Testament about brother and sister as not just cute little nice things that Paul would write? It's kind of a foreign way of speaking. We don't really do that anymore. What if we actually took those terms and meant them? They did something to us. What if we saw those who believe with us in the person and work of Jesus who have been unified in his death, baptized into his death and raised to walk in newness of life, that we are one in Christ and we have been given a new life together in Christ where we truly are brothers and sisters. A brother and sister that runs with the thickest blood, the strongest blood, the blood of Jesus. N.T. Wright says in his book, Mere Christianity Like This, the early Christians did their best to live as an extended family, caring for one another in a way in which, in that world, extended families did. They called each other brother and sister and really meant it. They lived and prayed and thought like that, children of the same father following the same older brother, sharing goods and resources where needs arose. When they talked about love, that's the main thing they meant, living as a single family, a mutually supported community. The church must never forget this calling. God's word is clear that you cannot say you love God and not love his people. How would that change the way we talk with one another and prayed with one another and bared with one another and forgive one another? 1 John 4.20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love his brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You say you love God? Loving his people is a natural overflow of that. You don't love God's people? You don't love God. It's simple and clear. Do Do we take that to heart? I hope we do. Of course, there are practical things that we can do to pursue unity. There's principles and classes and conflict resolution and communication covenants, which I think are all good. There's certain principles that we can seek to establish in our life, like praying for one another regularly seeking to write out the names of the people in this church and pray for them by name. You think I'm not going to tear someone else down. I'm, I'm only going to seek to build someone up. I'm, I'm not going to play games. I'm not going to put on a face. If, if I have a problem with someone, I'm going to talk to them. I'm not going to harbor resentment or bitterness. I'm not going to wonder if someone has a problem with me. I'm not going to make someone else wonder if they have a problem with me. I'm going to be open and honest about sins or, or ways I've sinned or been sinned against. I'm going to trust that there's going to be a gentleness and a spirit of reconciliation in the conversation. We can pursue unity by not talking about others behind their backs or not sharing information that is not for building up or beneficial and true. We can know and think about the dangers of gossip and slander and we can seek to stop it. came across a quote this week by a pastor named Scott Sauls who said this about gossip I thought it was provocative. Gossip is pornography of the mouth. A cheap thrill that offers zero commitment to the person being objectified. 
Right? We don't want to engage in these things. We don't want to engage in gossip. And those, I think, are good and helpful practices. Those are good principles. But the best tactic for pursuing unity is pursuing Christ together. Amen? The problem of our obedience to Jesus' commands or loving one another, forgiving one another, being one together is, I don't think, fundamentally in our practices or in our principles. It's in our hearts. Jephthah's problem was not that he didn't know how to be diplomatic. He showed that the chapter before with the king of the Ammonites. Jephthah's problem was that he did not know how to be patient or overlook offenses. Jephthah's problem, just like our problems, come from a lack of love that starts and is fundamentally rooted in the heart. When God's people ask to have their hearts changed and give them a heart for love for him and for his people, unity happens. We need a heart that is continually shaped and molded and affected by Jesus and the work that he has accomplished. A heart that has the gospel driven down deeper into our hearts so that it actually affects the way that we live. The reason that we might not love one another or pursue unity like we should is because the implications of the gospel have not been driven down deeply into our heart. They've not been thought through. They haven't been appreciated. They haven't been thought out or experienced deeply into our hearts. The problem is in our unbelief, our lack of understanding, a lack of experience of Christ's love and understanding what does this truth really do? What should it really accomplish? So my prayer this week and today is for our church is that the gospel and an understanding and appreciation of it would grow deeper and deeper. As we sing these songs about Jesus and we reflect upon the gospel as we take communion, as we think about the cross, that it would actually affect the way that we live from a day-to-day basis. That it actually affect and grow our love that we have for one another. Is your love for one another growing? Is your prayers for others growing? Is your love for God growing? Jesus has taught us that unity among God's people is the testimony and apologetic of the gospel. That the world would believe that God sent Jesus by the unity God's people have with one another. I pray that we would seek to strive to maintain the spirit of unity, that we wouldn't take these things lightly, that we would pursue it and encourage one another and not simply stand on the corner or stand by the wayside just hoping that good things will happen and that unity will just magically appear, but that we'd pursue it together, that we'd pursue Christ together. Would you commit to that with me? Let's come to Jesus and come to the cross and examine how the gospel will affect our love and our service and our forgiveness for one another. Let's have a unity of mind, a sympathy, a brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind that 1 Peter talks about. Let's have no divisions among us and be unified in the same mind and same judgment as Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Let's put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony as Paul writes to the church in Colossae. And as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, let's walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For there is one body, there is one Spirit, just as we were called to hope in the one hope that belongs to our call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all 
who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray.